0: up on today's show the alberta party speaking out against jason kenney's well we can call it a threat to bring in legislation restricting what municipalities can do is alberta's oil ethical or not the premier says it is and that's why the world should be turning to us and an unprecedented case between ukraine and russia before the international court of justice today The province announcing that they may take steps to bring in legislation telling municipalities that they can't, as the premier likes to call it, improvise around public health. They can't come up with their own rules. They need to follow provincial leadership on this. Rubbed a lot of municipalities the wrong way. Barry Marshida, of course, is the leader of the Alberta Party. But more than that, he was formerly a mayor of Brooks, and president of the Alberta Municipalities Association. So he's intimately connected to this and has some understanding about how all this works, and I'm glad he could join us this morning. Uh, Barry, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, Thanks, Shay. Happy to be here. So as I say, your experience with this particular issue or issues like this goes beyond your current role as party leader for the Alberta party. Uh, You you were a mayor, president of the Municipalities Association, so you've been dealing with uh, provincial municipalities relations for some time, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, You know, 16 years as a councillor and mayor, and I was uh, on the board for seven years and president for four. So uh, we've been dealing with the province on a number of these kinds of issues.
0: What's your experience been uh, going back through your time as a mayor? And as as you say, with the association, your experience in terms of provincial municipality relations, uh, what have you found?
1: Um, Broadly, it's been poor. (laughs) You know, the it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, every election or every other every meeting, it's always about they talk about partnerships and they want to do things, but at the end of the day, they really don't. They don't do anything. Uh, they make uh, legislation without consultation. This one is a, a, a fact of, of that for sure. Never called the mayor of Edmonton. Never called the president of the Alberta municipalities about this, and they just impose, impose, impose. When they have very willing partners in municipalities who, despite getting, you know, kind of trampled on a lot, still want to do what's best for their communities and still want to work with other levels of government.
0: So the situation that came up uh, last week where they're, you know, announcing that they may step in and actually bring in legislation restricting what municipalities do, is that a step too far for you? Well, absolutely it is. And,
1: uh, you know, it would be different if there was some purpose to this, except the podium politics that are being practiced right now, where you make an announcement, or you you make a decision on the spot, and then don't worry about what happens afterwards. When I was mayor of Brooks during COVID, we went above and beyond what the province was doing in regards to COVID. We had mass testing, we did isolation spaces, we paid for that ourselves. Is This government now telling municipalities that if you contradict our health policies, you're not allowed to do anything. It's ridiculous. And the fact that he claims that municipalities are ill-equipped or uh, I can't remember what word you
0: say they're um, ill-advised or unprepared. Improvising. He, says he doesn't want improvised. them improvising their own public health restrictions.
1: Right. Well, that's because they don't share information. They haven't shared information from the beginning, and that's their fault. We've had to... We, when I was Mayor Brooks, we, we worked with AHS, we look for information in all kinds of ways so we could do what was right. And then, you know, not too long ago, he was giving municipalities the autonomy to set their own rules because he wasn't willing to put a province-wide mask mandate in. And, and then, uh, you, I don't know if you remember, but when Calgary and Brooks were actually required when the restrictions were coming off last May... Um, we were we had to stay two weeks longer on the restrictions. So the fact that he talks about consistency, you no, know, you have to do what's right. And he's not doing what's right here. That's just plain and simple, the fact of it.
0: Okay, a couple of things there, Barry, uh, uh, for the sake of argument. First of all, does it not make sense to have some sort of consensus you know we, the patchwork approach is confusing retailers have said they hate it you know if, if if just take a look at the city of edmonton for example if you're within edmonton proper you need to wear a mask you go to sherwood park which literally is 30 seconds from edmonton st albert you name it there's all kinds of jurisdictions you can take the mask off now if you're a business that's on the border or you're close i mean now you've got to make the decision you've got to try and enforce maybe customers will go somewhere else i mean doesn't it make sense to have everybody on the same page here
1: yeah, you know, I, I I don't disagree with that. If there was some consultation and some discussion about what the purpose of the of the change was, if the information was shared. You know, is it any different than going backwards? I mean, when we Calgary and Brooks were two weeks later than everybody else removing const- uh, restrictions, we have the same issue, but we do have to manage this. One of the things that I think is a problem Shay is that sometimes the solutions for areas isn't always the same and I think we have to accept that um and work within that and leverage like uh municipalities and and their administration and their horsepower to get this done. So well yes it would be nice if we all had a perfectly you know smooth um, kind of uh, everybody have the same thing going on when it comes to this i don 't know if that 's always practical we don't we don 't do that in our normal lives, and I think it's not unreasonable for municipalities to have different rules if if they uh, if their residents rethink that 's the way it should be going
0: um so where's the line then I mean like you say, it does make sense to have the province in some ways being you know sort of the final version of what it's going to look like in the province of Alberta, just for the sake of consistency. They have the information, or at least they tell us they do. And I, and I agree with you in principle saying, if we had access to the information, we can make our own decisions. But hasn't the message all the way along, Barry, been, listen to the experts? They're, they're, these are the experts. And back, you know, a year and a half ago, it was, listen, they trust the science. Why are we now all of a sudden the same experts we, we know better or, or we're second-guessing? Why? Well,
1: again, uh, this is the inconsistent approach of the province you know when a municipality uh, declares the state a state of local emergency as we did early in the pandemic we 're allowed to go beyond uh, whatever the government yes. has ordered right as you as you understand it now they didn 't clamp that down when we were trying to do more when we had a problem. I think the problem is simply the politics of it you know to stand up. Uh, You know, in a podium, or I think it was a Facebook Live, where someone asks him about that, and then he wanders off and just says, well, you know, we we can't allow that to happen. He didn't think about the outcomes. He didn't think about what the potential uh, destructive consequences are. And, you know, municipalities and the Alberta Party have been talking a long time about how you need to, to trust Albertans, trust elder leaders, mm-hmm. work with municipalities. Uh, we would be far better off if we were doing that way instead of, uh, you know, worrying about what the next announcement's going to be.
0: Well, Barry, well, yeah, we'll see what the next announcement uh, Part of me thinks this may just fizzle out um, on its own, and we may not actually get to that point, but we'll watch it and, and, and as it goes along. And, and I appreciate you coming on and giving us the Alberta Party perspective. Well, thank you very much, Shay. Thanks, Barry. That is uh, Barry Morishita, who is... Um, leader of the Alberta party. Um, and as I say, he's got some pretty intimate knowledge of this, this sort of relationship, right? He's been around for a long time. And I, part of me understands what Jason Kenney is saying, you know, especially being in Edmonton and, and, speaking with Alberta, with Edmonton business owners. And they've been in the media ever since this was announced saying, well, thanks guys. We, we really need this. Like we need a hole in the head, right? Uh, now we've got our retailers need to try and go and enforce this. They need to try and deal with this prediction, City of Edmonton will have their meeting tomorrow and they'll remove the mask mandate, but we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, maybe they've made their point by putting the extra week in. I don't know what the point is. That's, the, that's what I'm saying. I think most people are positioned now where if you want to wear a mask, you should. And nobody should say anything about it. But at the same time, mandating it in one municipality when every other municipality in the province has a different rule just doesn't make sense. And then I go back to the whole thing about we were all about trust the experts, you know? Trust the experts. Listen to the public health officials and what they're telling us. Now, all of a sudden, we, we, we've got different public health officials or we've got different... I don't know. It's, it's very, very confusing, I think, is the bottom line. Um, and the confusion is part of the problem. And the consistency helps clear up the confusion. So in this instance, I think, Kenny, he doesn't need to bring in legislation. I think Edmonton will, will back off of this tomorrow. I could be wrong. Uh, it's a new council. I don't know all of them that familiar, uh, that well, uh, but my prediction would be, uh, you made your point, back off. But we'll see. We'll see what happens when they have their special meeting tomorrow. If you've been following the premier on Twitter, or if you do, or some of his comments in the media over the last oh, week, 10 days, uh, 12 days, I guess, since the invasion started, um, he immediately jumped in talking about Alberta oil. Alberta oil and how we are an ethical source of oil and we can replace the Russian source of oil. And it sort of plays right into something he's been talking about for a long time in terms of, you know, take a look at if you are not relying on Alberta produced oil, you know, now you're opening the door to places like Russia and Saudi Arabia and Iran and Venezuela. There's the list. We know what they are. Um, And he says, this is a perfect example of why the focus should be on what Alberta can do to provide, quote-unquote, ethical oil, rather than some of these other regimes. Now, Mark Mahisla is an energy journalist and analyst and author, and uh, he joins us on the show to talk about this. He put out a piece recently titled, Let's Admit the Truth, Alberta's Oil is Unethical. Markham joins us now to explain. Thanks for joining us, Markham. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. Always a pleasure. So, this piece, uh, walk me through it here. As I say, it's it's titled "Let's admit the truth: Alberta's oil is unethical." Tell us why you think that.
2: The ethical oil argument dates back to about a decade to uh, Ezra Levant's book uh, "Ethical Oil," and uh, Ezra, the uh, provocateur and political uh, you know activist who now heads up Rebel Media. Infamous rebel media argued that basically uh, Canada is a democracy and it respects human rights, and so many of the other uh, international oil producers don't. They're tyrannies, and we uh, that uh, therefore Canada's oil, Alberta's oil, should have an advantage. Right. It should be it, because it's ethical. That's it. That's the ethical oil. Argument. I argue that, in fact, there are other criteria for determining whether an oil could be considered ethical. And I've got three. One is, and this is particularly true as we become more and more concerned about climate change, and that is high emissions intensity. The oil sands makes up 11% of national, like Canadian, GHG emissions. The oil and gas sector altogether makes up 26%. And the oil sands crude, which is, you know, logically the, the type of crude that would be increased, that we'd see a higher production levels, is 69 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel. The American standard is about 37 kilograms. The European standard is 18 kilograms. The Norwegian standard is 9 kilograms. I mean, our oil, unfortunately, is very, very carbon-intensive. That's number
0: one. But hang on, Mark. With that one, as you know, there's all kinds of work. There's all kinds of discussion. And I don't know, I mean, to get it to zero, you know, down the road. And they have taken steps to drastically reduce the per-barrel emissions, haven't they?
2: Well, the key word in your comment is drastically. Okay. What they've done over the last 10 to 15 years is bring it down by 20%. It used to be 80 kilograms. Now it's it's 69 and there's, they're rapidly running out of opportunities uh, to, to do it without carbon capture and storage. So of the, the four big companies, Suncor, and CNRL, Imperial Oil, yeah. only Suncor has made a public commitment to bring its emissions down before 2030. And the rest are basically re- going to rely on carbon capture and storage uh, to do that, um, but And we're getting a little ahead of myself, but that's sort of my second objection. They're asking uh, the, fe- the government, and the, we'll, we'll, this means the federal government, not the provincial government, to put in $50 billion of the $75 billion cost to decarbonize at the very same time they're making refer- record profits and sending record returns back to investors. So, the, I mean, the question arises, why should the taxpayer pay for it? When when the uh, the company is has record free uh, profits, and so that's that's point number two, and the third one is the industry's enormous environmental liabilities. The oil sands, for instance, has uh, 37 tailings ponds with mm-hmm. 1.3 trillion liters of toxic tailings. The, uh, the reclamation is estimated to be 31 billion dollars. Only 900 million has been put in security. With the provincial government, the industry, and the regulator have kicked this down the, uh, this issue down the the road many, many times, and there's still no real way to re, to economically reclaim them. And and then, of course, you've got orphan wells and inactive wells, which is a whole other scandal on its own. Add all of those up together, and it I think there's a credible argument to be made to counter the the premier. That in fact, the oil is unethical.
0: And I think you're, I mean, there's definitely issues when you're talking about oil and gas and the environmental issues we know. I mean, they're well documented. And will they get a handle on them to the extent that they say they do? But a couple of the things, like, you know, you point out uh, Norway, what is, they're 9%, right? And we're, we're 36%. 9, kil- nine kilograms nine, of like- CO2 equivalent. Now, but, I mean, when you take a look at Norway and Netherlands, I mean, governments funded their carbon capture programs there quite heavily. Too. I mean, the partnership between government and industries is pretty well established in this field.
2: Right. But the, there's only one small carbon capture project. The reason why Norway's uh, uh, car, uh, average uh, CO2 per barrel is much, much lower
0: is the product. Is because it's the,
2: of the resource. It's yeah. the, you know, the, the uh, Johan Severedup field has uh, carbon intensity under one kilogram of CO2 equivalent per barrel, literally 1% of the average Alberta, Alberta crew. So, uh, yes, it's true that there's been some uh, support for carbon capture st- storage in, uh, in Norway, but that's only a small part of the story.
0: What about the fact, okay, and, and you're right, you talk about the U.S., you talk about Norway, you talk about Netherlands, places like that, but the the, the, the example that Jason Kenney's talking about, we're seeing it right now with Russia. Um, when we take a look at um, carbon zero or net zero pledges, we take a look at the, the global methane pledge, uh, all these sorts of things that Canada is involved with, that Alberta is involved with. We talk about these things. We Maybe we don't do a, a, a fantastic job, but it's, it's part of the discussion and there are rules and there are regulations. None of those pledges apply in Iran or in Russia or in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they don't talk about net zero. I mean... In terms of the ethical approach that way, is it perfect? No, I agree with you. But at the same time, at least it's a, it's a topic of conversation and it's a goal in Canada.
2: Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, if you on that basis, if it's uh, the quality of our talk, we're absolutely much better <laughs> off than Russia and Saudi Arabia and all the countries that, that you just mentioned. We're not so good as a rule at implementing because I've been interviewing the oil sands, uh, you know, for a decade. Uh, about this and I've talked to you know VPs of technology at some of the producers and, they, and they've talked about this wonderful like solvent substitution technology for instance that they've got and they but they've never implemented it at scale they've never done it there's never been any motivation at scale and when now that the the, pr- the pressure is finally on and the federal government later this month is going to bring out an emission reduction plan which will include an oil and gas emissions cap that's all well and good, but it's uh, it's only going to bring emissions down incrementally each year. And, and there, here's an important point, Shay: When it comes to absolute emissions, uh, emissions in oil and gas, particularly the oil sands, have never, ever dropped as long as output keeps increasing. Right, yeah, so and you- production's
0: higher than right. ever before.
2: And the, the uh, Environment Canada is predicting that by forecasting by 2030... That oiling, there will be another nine hundred thousand barrels a day of, of Canadian oil production that comes that's coming on stream. So that, in my opinion, is going is likely to wipe out any of the gains that will come from you know emissions intensity reductions.
0: Okay, I I, I understand a lot of the arguments you're making around the environmental side of this, and I think you make some great points and and they're, they're legitimate. Where your argument falls apart for me is right here when you say that you know Russia, the regime that is you know, basically invading Ukraine, killing people, waging war. 36% of their general revenue comes from oil and gas, right? Um, We're talking about two different things here. There's the ethics of the environment, but there's also the ethics of the regime and what the money is used to mean. Alberta's not waging war on sovereign states. Um, The money is not being used for those kinds of activities. And when you talk about ethics, that's a huge consideration, is it not? It absolutely certainly is.
2: The the answer is whether Alberta oil or more oil and gas in general is the is the solution, because what's being left out of this discussion is that is Europe. Uh, do you have are you aware on social media or in any news reports, Shea, of uh, Europeans clamoring for more Alberta oil and gas? No, no. The, Europe actually has their long-term energy plan has for a long time now been to electrify, to switch off fossil fuels and get onto, uh, onto uh, renewable energy and other sources of clean energy. In some countries it's nuclear. And now you already see some of the, the European leaders saying, you know what, the 3 million barrels of oil uh, that we import a day from Russia, the 40 percent of our gas that comes from Russia – we're not going to replace it with just another source of oil and gas. We're not going to just import it from North America or some other. Right. We're going to accelerate our transition to to electricity, uh, to basically to electrify. So before we get you know ahead of ourselves and start talking about you know the, building the Keystone XL pipeline and and uh, you know increasing production and all of that, we, we really should be talking to our customers and find out if in fact. Uh, or potential customers, and see if, in fact, they are interested in, uh, in what we have to sell.
0: Yeah, and, and this is the argument, Mark, I think you get into this, the time frame thing, right? Because you're, like, you're right, the, it will intensify the transition to electrification and all this. But right now, they won't step in and say, we're not buying Russian oil and gas anymore, because they're not in a position to make that decision today. And for the rest of this week, if you know what I mean, like, at this point, they're going to continue to pay Russia for oil and gas, because they have to.
2: Well, we're going to see what they're going to do because uh, later on this week, uh, the EU will release its updated energy plan, yeah. and I'll be watching that with with great interest because that will signal what their strategy
0: is. And what do you, so but we'll, realistically, we'll what can they do?
2: Well, the uh, just on the gas side, the International Energy Agency has already released a plan about how Europe could cut its uh, its gas imports from Russia dramatically within the next year. I think it, it cut it by 40%. And that so quickly? Really cut, that quickly, and then get off Russian, uh, Russian gas entirely within a, a, a very short uh, time frame. So they're already thinking about this. You know, the IEA and the EU and the various... Uh, and, and Look, there are plenty of uh, EU countries like Poland that have wanted to get off oil, uh, Russian oil and gas uh, for a long time and now see this as an opportunity. So (laughs) this is a very complex situation. You've got issues on the demand side. You've got issues on the supply side. I mean, how long does it take to build a pipeline? It takes a long time in North America. How long does it take to ramp up production in uh, in the oil sands? Well, it takes a long time. And here's another little wrinkle for you, uh, Shay, that we haven't talked about and is not being talked about in Alberta. Mexico announced a couple of months ago that it's going to stop exporting about 600,000 barrels of heavy crude oil to the U.S. Gulf Coast. That That's direct. Mexican mine is a direct competitor with uh, Alberta heavy crude in that particular market. So Alberta is going to have lots of other market demand to worry about uh, and that it'll have maybe even trouble fulfilling that demand, responding to the shortage in the marketplace Before it needs to worry about exporting more oil to Europe.
0: Yeah, we'll see. We'll watch the meetings closely. Unfortunately, I'm out of time uh, for this uh, interview, Mark, but we'll do it again soon. It's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for your time today. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Jake. You bet. Thanks, Mark. This morning, a Ukrainian lawyer was urging the United Nations top court to order Russia to halt its devastating invasion. Uh, a hearing that Moscow didn't even show up for, by the way. The International Court of Justice has scheduled two days of hearings into Ukraine's request. Judge Joan who read Ukraine's complaint that Russia has used a false pretext to even take military action. And now, as part of that military action, is targeting civilians.
3: In its application, Ukraine also accuses the Russian Federation of carrying out the actus reus of genocide by intentionally killing and inflicting serious injury on Ukrainian nationals accompanied by what Ukraine considers rhetoric suggestive suggestive of genocidal intent.
0: So, war crimes um, and the International Court of Justice definitely in the headlines for the past several days, more so today as the hearing got underway. So we're going to chat with Valerie Oosterveld, who is an Associate Director of Western University's Centre for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction, also a member of the Canadian Partnership for International Justice, and something of an expert when it comes to the International Court of Justice. Very pleased that she could find time to join us today. Valerie, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it.
3: You're welcome. Happy to join you.
0: Yeah, so let's just discuss what's going on. First of all, just sort of define the playing field for us. The International Court of Justice, that's the United Nations highest court, correct?
3: That's correct. It's, it's often called the World Court because it's the court in which countries can bring other countries to account.
0: Okay, and what happened here is Ukraine came before the court and put forward an argument that war crimes are being committed, and in fact, the invasion on its own was done on false pretext and therefore was a war crime, correct?
3: Exactly. So what Ukraine is arguing is that Russia has used a false claim that genocide is occurring in order to then try to legitimize its aggression in terms of its invasion and everything that's happened since. So Ukraine is saying, hey, uh, International Court of Justice, um, Russia is trying to use the genocide convention as a form of a a veil to try to shield what it's actually doing in the Ukraine.
0: So, okay, I I wasn't even aware of this until I started reading this. Russia's reason, or, or at least their justification for doing what they did, they said that Ukraine was committing war crimes in the Donbass, in the regions that were disputed as in terms of occupation. And They said the reason they had to go in is because genocide was occurring, correct?
3: Exactly. So it sounds ludicrous because, to be frank, it is ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Russia is saying that Ukraine has an intent to destroy in whole or in part the people of the Donbass and that it needs to go in to try to stop that. Now, as Ukraine pointed out today at the International Court of Justice, um, it's gone in at, you know, north, south, east, west, um, not just in the Donbass region, and it's carrying out things that that are far beyond trying to ostensibly protect people in the Donbass from some kind of um, genocide. Ukraine also pointed out that there's absolutely no proof whatsoever of any of Ukraine committing any genocide anywhere. Um, and relied upon United nations documents to to prove that
0: what is the point like like you say it is ludicrous and I think most of the world recognizes that it's ludicrous Russia didn't even show up to the hearing they're not paying it any mind um what is the point what what is the reasoning for taking this to the court is it binding in any way can there be you know consequences to russia for this? Yes, it is binding
3: actually every single time that a uh, a country brings another country before the court through a treaty to which both are party, and in this case both countries are part of the Genocide Convention, um, then the outcome is binding. So getting a binding um, ruling by the court that can help to create another peaceful lever um, for Ukraine to put pressure on Russia. Now, no one in the world is at this point um, thinking that Russia is going to comply but and the United Nations doesn't have a police force, so it can't force it to comply. But it is yet another piece of that pressure that needs to be put on um, on Russia. And and to be honest, Ukraine is using every single possible lever that it can find in order to put that pressure on.
0: What about all the other allegations that Russia is actually committing war crimes with some of the actions that's being carried out? Will that be part of what's going on over the next couple of days?
3: Um. In a way, because what Ukraine is doing is what it's saying to the court is, hey, you need to look at all the actual actions that Russia is taking, because that demonstrates that it is not reacting to a genocide. It is taking aggressive um, and illegal action, which includes war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, I should mention that the case actually finished early because Russia didn't, didn't show, show up. up yeah, noted. So Ukraine did all of its arguments today and Russia was supposed to do its arguments tomorrow. But because Russia didn't come, uh, the court ended and the president of the court said that they would be coming out with a provisional uh, measures order or uh, ruling as soon as, as it possibly could.
0: So the ruling comes out, the measures realistically, is there any expectation that Putin will give a damn, to be frank, what the U.N. says at this point?
3: Well, it's interesting that Russia didn't show up. Um, Russia has shown up in the past. So Ukraine has brought Russia to the court in the past, and it showed up. It had like 25 lawyers. Um, Russia has shown up in the past when Georgia brought a similar type of claim to the International Court of Justice. So the fact that Russia didn't show up today may mean that it literally has no argument to make, yeah. um, and no legal argument to make. So I do think someone was sweating somewhere about the fact whether or not they should go and what they should say. Um, I should also mention that some high-profile lawyers that have helped Russia in the past have refused to help them uh, this time.
0: Oh, interesting, okay. so mm-hmm. they're, well, well, we know they've been turned into a pariah state in much of the yes. world, right? So.
3: Yeah. Exactly. So so on the one hand, um, it does help create a bit of pressure on Russia. On the other hand, no, nobody is holding their breath for Putin to say, oh, my goodness, the International Court of Justice has ordered me to stop, I, therefore I should stop. Um, but what it does actually do is if the court uh, makes this order asking Russia to stop, then it actually helps other parts of the United Nations to take action and other bodies, international and regional bodies, to take action the, the UN court is the highest court in the world, and it does kind of open the door um, to support what the International Criminal Court prosecutor is doing. On Friday, the Human Rights Council in Geneva, the UN Human Rights Council, um, decided to create an independent investigative mechanism, uh, in, uh, sorry, commission of, of inquiry. And this uh, ruling by the court can help that uh, sort of come to being mm-hmm. faster. So it has other knock-on effects that can be helpful. It's not going to stop Putin, but um, it is it is another step that can be taken.
0: Right, yeah, exactly. And, and they continue to pile up. Um, Valerie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. That is Valerie Usterveld, who is an expert in the International Court of Justice, the International Criminal Court, the U.N. High Court, whatever you want to call it got a bunch of different names but um as we heard Russia just didn't show up today. What does that mean? I mean <laughs> this is the question about this court. Uh Russia just decided not to show up. Judge Joan Donahue said Russia's ambassador sent a letter to the officials saying uh yeah, we're not interested. The court regrets the non-appearance of the Russian Federation in these oral proceedings. Okay? Um so I guess is you know, will this be a test of the United Nations and um whether or not you know, any of this will actually have any sort of impact. Will it mean anything? That's the question I have with this court. You know, it, Taking a look at it, I think the arguments are pretty clear. Um, and and in my take on Russia not showing up, because Russia doesn't care, they made that pretty clear. Um, it's more interesting to see how NATO is going to respond. I think that's, that's the bigger issue. And that's, that's another discussion altogether. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.